that's just a little workshop on hand raising. So the <laughs> scripture does say that we raise holy hands to the Lord. It's about holy hands. And, and that's because worship is really state of the heart before it becomes state of the art. You know, um, the church has always argued about worship styles. Our generation in evangelical churches, we wanted to break out of the three hymns, the Gloria Patri. The first church that I pastored in New England had two chorus books and a hymnal. And the older folks had agreed to allow us to sing from the chorus books, but only before the actual service began. And then we get into the real worship service, which had had the traditional music. And our generation couldn't wait to be in charge. And, and we brought all the Jesus people music into the church. And we still call that today, ready? Contemporary Christian worship. It's from the 1970s. I just want to point that out. I, I don't think that that term applies any longer. The church has always argued about worship styles. It goes back to the first century because there were actually three groups that grew out of the birth of the church in the book of Acts. And each of them had a different way of worshiping. There were the Aramaic Jews and they saw Christianity as a continuation of Jewish tradition and the synagogue that's where many of the traditions of women staying silent and who spoke and did what. That all grows out of Aramaic Jewish tradition. The second group were the Hellenistic Jews who saw the Old Testament traditions in much the same way I've taught in this series on worship as illustrative, as metaphor for the gospel and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So they tended to see Christianity as putting an end to the Old Testament traditions and sought newness. But then there were the Gentile converts. They had come to Christ through the missionary efforts primarily of the Apostle Paul. They were completely disconnected from what would have been considered traditional worship at that point. Their worship was rather experiential and, and tended to drift away from what was appropriate in worship. And so much of the instruction that we have on worship in Scripture comes out of trying to address these points of conflict. But we do see in Scripture key things that ought to be part of our corporate worship. And by the time we get into the early church fathers, we see commonality, even though it expressed itself stylistically in very different ways based on what culture uh, they were in. Now, Something dramatically changed in public worship when the center of power for the church moved from the epicenter, which was Jerusalem, to the center of the world at that time, and that was Rome. The Roman Empire becomes, by declaration, Christian. And there's, there's some good to what came out of that. I'm not trying to state this as a, as a completely negative thing. But under that leadership of the church, first of all, the emperor of the world was also the head of the church. Oh, that's, a, that's a dangerous mix. A lot of the great evils that are associated with Christianity grew out of Christianity being seen as uh, something that had to be defended politically and militaristically. Uh, the holy wars, for instance, grow out of a confused idea of what the kingdom of God was. Jesus said the kingdom of God is not of this world. It was not Rome, but Rome believed it was. 
And so because of that, worship of a form was enforced on everyone. And it got to the point where there were those who knew that there was something missing as they searched the scriptures. And that brings us to the Reformation. And the Reformation is not just a recovery of the gospel message, salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, not of works so that any man should boast, but it was also an attempt to recover authentic worship. And again, it led to controversy. (laughs) And again, there were three primary directions in the Reformation. There were the traditionalists, the Lutherans and the Episcopals and the Anglicans. Those sought to redeem and recover the mass. High church, they are confessional, but true to to the gospel. So there were the traditionalists and then what I might call the worship anarchists, Zwingli, the Anabaptists, And by the way, those of us that uh, grew up Baptist, we actually come from those rebels, those radical non-traditionalists who believed any form was evil. And today you still see that in uh, churches like the Quakers, for instance, where uh, we just show up and see what happens. (laughs) Totally unstructured. And then the, the middle group, which we might call the moderates, Calvin and Wesley, who held as central to worship the preaching of the word of God. And out of the preaching and proclamation of the word of God, worship and proper response flowed. All of us, if if we have been raised in some Christian tradition, actually come from one of those forms. Add to that mix in the last years the, the charismatic movement, which is not a denomination, but a movement that permeates and therefore is hard to define. We have more of an emphasis on God's presence in worship, gifted ministry in worship, spontaneity, uh, use of corporate song to really join together and wholeheartedly. So we have been influenced really by all of these streams one way or another, the sense of what real worship ought to be. Last week, we did our first of two weeks on the people of God worshiping together a theological basis on the metaphors in 1 Peter chapter 2. And today we're actually going to talk about what we do when we worship together. But I want to start by taking us through the two definitions of worship that we built over the first four weeks of this series. The first and most generally is this. Say it with me. Worship is the task of all creation as it declares the glory of God. For from him and through him and to him are all things so that he would receive the glory. The second is about us as people. Let's say this. Worship is our highest calling and eternal vocation. It involves all that we are, mind, emotion, will, and body, responding in attitude and action in every detail of life to all that God is and does. Worship is praise and adoration directed to the Father by way of His Son, Jesus Christ, enabled by the Holy Spirit. If you're just coming into this series and all that sounds like gobbledygook, I want to encourage you to go back and and listen to the foundational sermons we did in the first half of this, and you'll get why it's a summary of everything that we learned. Now today, I want to add our third working definition, and that's what public worship is, corporate worship. Let's say that together. In public worship, believers gather as the body of Christ to unitedly and creatively respond to God so that he is glorified 
Public worship comes from the overflow of individual lives committed to the passionate pursuit of knowing and loving God. So in other words, what we do here only takes on its fullest meaning and power when we are fulfilling that second definition, that we are worshipers in every detail of life and at the heart of our worship of God as individuals is this passionate pursuit of knowing God. Remember from Jeremiah 9, let not the wise boast in their wisdom or the strong glory in their strength or the rich glory in their riches. So what do we worship about if it's not just gratitude for what God does? Let those who glory, glory in this, he says, that they understand that's the knowledge of God and know that's the experience of God, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord who executes loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. From these, I take delight, declares the Lord. I receive worship. So if you want Sunday mornings to be an overwhelming experience of the presence and joy and work of God, pursue him during the week. But when we do come together, there are things that we are to do. There are things God expects from us. So I'm gonna list the primary things that scripture includes as part of our worshiping together. But we are gonna start with Colossians chapter three, verses 16 and 17. Let the message of Christ dwell among you. And again, the word you there is in plural. It's yunzes, to go back to last week. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So various elements, the word of God. Did you know singing is not just to God, but to one another in worship? Did you know that? We're calling out praise from each other as we sing. Gratitude, thankfulness. Let me take you also to Ephesians chapter 5. Similar passage, beginning at verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me just run through the things that Scripture indicates should be part of our corporate life together. First of all, we worship in the name of Jesus. We honor Jesus Christ. We worship him. And in glorifying him, Philippians 2 says, that brings praise and honor to God the Father. Doing everything we do in the name, which means under the authority and in honor of Jesus Christ. Now, you could go to churches who are meaning well. In fact, I I think there are probably Sundays in the past that we've been guilty of this, where you could go through the whole worship time and the name of Jesus isn't mentioned once. There's plenty of songs out there that just say you or him or refer to God, but we must name and honor the name of Jesus every time we come together. Whatever you do in word or deed, you do it all in the name 
of Jesus Christ. We worship in the name of Jesus. Second, we celebrate the ordinances. All Christians everywhere celebrate the two things that were passed on to us by Jesus, baptism and communion. Baptism, we see as how a person, when they were professing and embracing their life in Christ, declared that to the world around them. The word baptizo literally means to immerse, and it was an action of the ancient Hebrew mikvah, which was an immersion into water and a coming out as a rite of cleansing or moving into a new phase of life. The mikvah was the baptism of John the Baptist, and it was also the baptism of Jesus and his disciples. And then Jesus said, go and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we practice believer's baptism by immersion, believing that it is our way of saying publicly, I have committed my life to be a follower of Jesus. And going into the water, I'm leaving my old life behind. And then coming out of the water, I'm entering into newness of life in Christ. It's a wonderful tradition. The waters of baptism are symbolic of your birth into the family of God. And that's why we do it together. The second thing that Jesus passed on to us And that's communion. Turn with me now quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Church at Corinth would fall into the Gentile Christian group. And because of their emphasis on experience and spontaneity, uh, there were a lot of things that needed correction. But one of the things he talks about is how they had abused the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to begin reading it, chapter 11, verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Wow. For your meetings do more harm than good. Wow. What he's saying is, when you come together for worship, you're hurting things, not helping things. Worship can be harmful if it's not true worship. And here's how they were doing more harm than good in relation to communion. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. I think that's sarcasm. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. I think that's also sarcasm. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. Wait a minute, we're breaking bread, we're drinking the cup. What do you mean it's not the Lord's Supper? Ah, worship is state of the heart, not state of the art. So even the sacraments can be false worship, can be more harmful than good if our hearts are not right in the practice of it. And here's how it worked out for them. Verse 21, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not on this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul says that in doing it, we proclaim the gospel. And as believers, we reclaim it as we come together. We remind ourselves of the, of the death of our Lord, that that's at the center of our experience together and of our life. Christ calls us to the cross over and over again. And the way he does that is through communion. A third area, we hear the word of God. We hear it read and we hear it proclaimed. We pray together. As a kingdom of priests, we pray as an act of seeking God in worship and adoration, but also interceding on behalf of our city, of our world. We sing together, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Uh, Let me talk about what those are. Psalms are literally from the hymn book of Israel. They're from the Old Testament Psalms. Hymns are theologically rich statements about God sung to God. Hymns are not hymns by virtue of how old they are or whether they get in the hardbound book sitting in most pews. You see, within that hymn book, there are psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. A hymn is theologically driven, and I'm going to tell you some of the greatest hymns that I have ever heard are being written right now by Christians around the world. We sing some of those hymns. Some of you think they're not hymns because they're not something you grew up with, but they're hymns, and they deepen our understanding of God. A spiritual song is a song of testimony. It proclaims God's actions on behalf of the world, or it might be my personal testimony in song that allows me to express gratitude and to brag about God. It doesn't have to be directed to God, even though it is in praise of God. So think about that. There's no such thing as hymn-only worship, according to Scripture. And there's no such thing as hymnless worship. Those are the three forms of songs that embody corporate worship. And we need to welcome all of them. We could spend a lot of time on that, but we're going to move on. We give of our means in worship. We bring an offering. We confess our faith together through creeds and doxologies. In some sense, every church should be a confessional church. You see instances of those creeds and doxologies in the epistles that were clearly part of the regular gathering of the body of Christ. The reason why Paul includes them is because he knew they would be familiar to everyone. And then finally, we testify and confess to one another. So these are the things that scripture lists. We might add a few, you might prioritize some over the others, but we should be paying attention to all these areas. And if we do that, our worship will be full, knowledgeable, spirit-led. And I'm putting it in front of our worship people to think about as we plan worship, what are we missing that scripture calls us to? And can I ask you to thank our worship people for all the work that they do um, in leading us. 
And I want you to know they work very hard at understanding worship, honoring God, and personally growing in their faith. And that's why I think God uses them so well. Now we're moving from seminar to exhortation. And I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 10. Start at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, and these are several statements that we're calling the let us statements. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I want to use this to go through a list of priorities that ought to be on our heart as we come together in corporate worship. Let us pursue these things together. The first is the gospel. The gospel. The only reason we can approach God is because a way has been made by the blood of Jesus and our hearts have been sprinkled clean. Go back a few weeks ago when we talked about that whole journey of grace into the holy of holies that when Christ died on the cross, that veil that separated people from the presence of God symbolically in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. The reason why we can approach God together as the people of God is because the true Lamb of God, His blood was shed for us, and therefore we can draw near to God. So the gospel is the central theme, the undergirding, and it's the pathway for real worship. Second priority, seeking God together. Let us draw near to God. The idea of God's presence has layers in Scripture. He is omnipresent. He is present everywhere. The psalmist says, where can I hide from your presence? So God is everywhere present. God is relationally present in our lives individually as Christians through the presence of the Holy Spirit. But there is a third dynamic, and it grows out of that metaphor last week of us being a spiritual house, the house of God. When God's people come together, the power and presence of God is manifest in a profound way. Not just here, but when we show up other places. You know that I'm I'm part of a group of pastors and Christian leaders that pray once a month in the mayor's office. God shows up in the mayor's office. I remember being in Haiti years ago, and we took a tour to one of the most sacred sites of the voodoo religion. It was on a mountaintop 
Satan loves the high places because they were meant to worship God. Satan loves to take over the high places. And this was a high place with caves in it. And it was where a lot of voodoo sacrifices and rituals and spells were cast. And we went there as a group. We prayed before we went up. And uh, what we found in there, oh boy, that's a story all on its own. By the way, we led a man to Christ right there in the voodoo cave. It was pretty awesome. Right there in front of the voodoo high priest. We're standing there having a party because the gates of hell have not prevailed against the church of Jesus Christ. And the, the voodoo priest comes to us and says, uh, when are you leaving? <laughs> the head of our team said, why? He said, it's because nothing's working while we're here, right? He said, yeah. Together, we bring a manifest, authoritative, powerful presence of God. And it shows up here. We come here to seek God's presence. And I want to say, let's go deeper. Let's draw nearer together to God. Let's do it with abandon. Let's come boldly before the throne of grace together in our worship. We seek God. Let us draw near to God. Third, building our faith. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because he who promised is faithful. When you are separate from the body of Christ, when you try to live out your faith apart from the body of Christ, your faith gets weak, doesn't it? You get doubtful. Your priorities shift. You begin to wonder if it's all real because you're not experiencing the manifest presence of God in the corporate body and you're not being encouraged by people who are struggling with the same thing but holding hard to their faith, following hard after God. We need to come together to be strong in our faith. Fourth, motivation. (laughs) Spur one another on towards good deeds. We remind ourselves that it is in loving our neighbor that we fulfill in some mystical way loving God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Motivation. Fifth, community. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit. Isn't that interesting? Even in first century Christianity, there were people that, you know, kids sports and fall leaf trips and yard work and just a nice Sunday morning reading the paper. They had those problems back then. Some are in the habit of neglecting. We need each other. We need to be in community Christianity is a team sport. There's no I in Christian. No, that's not true. (laughs) That was a joke, just so you know. All right. Encouragement. Encouragement. One of the things I love about Sunday mornings is how, how uplifted I feel when I'm with the family of God, when we've worshiped together, when we've encouraged each other. I leave knowing this life is worthwhile. I feel blessed. And we give that to one another. I hope you find the journey to be a place where you're encouraged and blessed. And then finally, focus. We need to come together because it keeps our focus on things that are eternal. He says, do this and all the more as you see the day. You know what the day means? 
the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, as you see the day approaching. Part of our corporate value is represented very well in that very brief traditional confession. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will. (laughs) Not a whole lot of confessional people here, right? (laughs) Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We repeat that, we call that out to each other because it reminds us we don't live for today, we live for eternity. We live for eternity. I've just thought about this and I'm gonna do this. Last week I mentioned Fred Ross who went home to be with the Lord. He scripted his funeral, he wrote his own obituary and he also wrote some final comments. Talk about focus. I wanna read Fred's parting words. I was blessed with one wife, Donna, for 52 years, with no time off for good behavior. This was read at his funeral. (laughs) Our time together was mostly blissful, but sprinkled with occasional minor disagreements. The only significant disagreements were when Donna would enumerate my faults. After a few of these occasions, I discovered the ideal response I quickly brought to Donna's attention that I and my faults were not the problem. It was her fault for choosing a poor spouse. (laughs) Anyway, out of this marriage came four beautiful and wonderful daughters, he names them. And out of these unions came seven grandchildren. He also mentions his son-in-laws who he loves and he he lists the great-grandchildren as well. And he says, so we did our share to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. Most of us have given thought to the big questions of life. How did the universe get here? How did life on earth happen? What is the reason I am here? What happens after death? For me, it all starts with God. The Bible book of Proverbs, chapter one, verse seven, in part says, the fear or reverential respect of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I firmly believe that God created the universe and life on this planet. He is the reason I am here, parentheses, was here, close parentheses, to worship and give reverential respect to him and to recognize his sovereignty and therefore my responsibility to obey his rules and laws as given in the scriptures. I believe that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior in the way to receive forgiveness of sins and to be reconciled to God. As to the question of life after death, I believe our spirits are eternal and will be joined again with our bodies at resurrection. In the play, Peter Pan, that highly respected philosopher, states, to die will be an awfully big adventure. However, The greatest philosopher, Jesus Christ, said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So my family and friends, shed some tears if you must, but quickly wipe away the tears with a smile. I am off on the greatest adventure of my eternal life. The Lord bless you all. Fred. Fred sat somewhere in that area for a year of our lives here. I I wish I had known him more, 
Fred was part of that group that came with the building. (laughs) Really, the building came with these incredible, wonderful people that we have gotten to unfold into this church body. And because so many of them are in their last decades of life, this experience with Fred reminded me how much encouragement and focus we can receive from them, but we can only do it if we're in community with them, if we're together. You see, Fred reminded me that we need people in our lives that not only teach us how to live, but teach us how to die. Focus comes out of coming together and seeking God, right? Oh, let's do this. Let's do this together. Let's be this people of praise. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Say with me, amen, amen.